You're listening to Drek FM. Taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, knower of all things Trek literature, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing today? Doing very well today, Chris. Um, just kind of a normal day. Nothing too exciting here. Work and whatnot. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm I'm actually a bit sick, so I hope my voice sounds okay as we delve into the Star Trek literature world. Uh, now, you, you've got to be pretty excited because you're getting ready for the big game. Am, am I correct there? That is true. That is true. I was very excited this last weekend uh, that my 49ers won in a very large sports bowl game. Um, they had a super-sized victory, didn't they? It really did. It, it was a very big victory, super-sized, one might say. Uh, and it's like they had all gone to McDonald's and had a super-sized fries and Diet Coke. Right. And like a big bowl. It, yes, it was like somebody right. had given them a huge bowl of salsa. So <laughs> supersized fries and Coke, Diet Coke that was, and, and then a big bowl of salsa. Yeah, it's super. And, you know, to tie this back into Star Trek, you know, our friend Dayton Ward, he's a big Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. If the Bucks ever get back to the Super Bowl, I would love to see him actually work the Bucks into a Star Trek novel. You know, maybe some sort of flashback scene, maybe one of Kirk's ancestors was a linebacker for the Bucks, something like that. I'd like to see that. I think that could work, actually. Um, you know, we do have those kind of references all the time in Star Trek, you know, the Picards and their family line goes all the way back and blah, 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 blah. Well, I mean, I'm tired of explorers and stuff. Give me Kirk's ancestor was a linebacker. I mean, come on. Where is that? uh, Yeah. We're putting out the clarion call here for Dayton. We need one of Kirk's ancestors to be a linebacker. We really do. And I'd love to see Worf as a linebacker as well. You know, I think that Worf being a linebacker is almost as dangerous as like Superman playing football. You know, Worf is just way too strong to be playing against humans. I mean, can you imagine him tackling somebody? I mean, just the <laughs> rib crushing alone. I mean, look what he did to Janzia in the holodeck. That would be something to see. All right. Well, enough sports ball talk here, even if we are tying it into <laughs> Star Trek. Why don't we get into our news? Now, today's a little bit different than our usual show. Instead of doing an interview with an author this week, we are going to delve deeply into comics for the very first time. We have had a number of listeners who have asked us when we are going to talk about the Star Trek ongoing comics, and so we're going to do that today. We have a little bit of news for you, which is all comic-related, and then we're going to talk about the first six issues of Star Trek ongoing. So this is going to be Literary Trek's first comic extravaganza, and I hope you're all excited about that. Woohoo! 
Comics Palooza! <laughs> oh, I forgot the kazoos. Dang oh, it. man. So, Matthew, first up, of course, the big news over the past week has been the release of Countdown to Darkness. And we're going to talk about the first issue, which we both had an opportunity to read just before it was released to the public. And before we do that, last week we were talking about where the story might lead. And, you know, we were wondering for a while now who's going to be on that fourth cover. And there has been the speculation that it would be John Harrison, which made perfect sense to me. But it turns out that it's not John Harrison. Turns out that it's going to be a Klingon, which was really interesting to me because we do know from the film that the Klingons and their home world are going to play some part in this. Um, For those who know, of course, the Klingons were supposed to be in Star Trek 09 as well, and they were a part of a deleted scene because the Klingons had captured Nero and his crippled ship um, and held them for about 25 years. And so there was a whole scene where they were there. Um, so the Klingon that we do see is uh, the same design that they used for those deleted scenes, the same helmet with the ridges and everything, and that's what's going to be gracing the cover of Star Trek Into Darkness 4. Uh, so very interesting, uh, obviously, I guess, uh, really tying into somehow why we would see the Klingons in Star Trek Into Darkness. It is interesting because you would expect that last cover to set up the villain. But I don't think that the Klingons are the villains here. So I wonder what kind of role they are going to play. It's starting to feel like this whole villain angle is much more complex than what we've normally gotten in a Star Trek film. That it's not just John Harrison. You know, we talked about not knowing who Peter Weller's playing. And as we talk about the first issue of Countdown to Darkness in just a moment, we know that there is yet another angle being introduced. And then we have Klingons on the fourth cover. It's getting very interesting. It does seem like, in some ways, it might be that the Klingons, especially in this fourth, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, uh, that in this fourth issue will be played as the villains, but Kirk and maybe the Enterprise don't know, um, and maybe that's what leads to this, you know, um, a lot of people dying on the Enterprise, maybe that's that mission that, you know, Kirk and pike are talking about in the scene in the trailer um so maybe it looks like it that the klingons are the bad guys but they're maybe just being played by harrison uh, or somebody else nefarious and so uh yeah it, it does seem that we were are gonna get some um really intricate plot work here when it comes to the villain which I, i'm hoping for I, they have been promising us that harrison is not just um your normal run-of-the-mill villain in fact um, uh, treknews.net uh, had a great uh, video from um, MTV the other day with all of the different people involved in Star Trek uh, you had Benedict Cumberbatch talking about Harrison and that he's um, he's going to be just this villain who's extremely smart uh, you know a menace uh, very much a terrorist but doing stuff for a reason, you know, not just some kind of angry 
brute. And so, yeah, this this is blowing me away right now. So it really is. And yeah, so shortly we will talk more in depth about the story behind Countdown to Darkness in the first issue. And uh, it's it's really quite good. Well, before we get to that, before we go any further into this, we did also want to mention the special Enterprise Edition cover that's available on the first issue of Countdown to Darkness. Now, this is a very nice looking cover. I like all the covers for this issue, to to be honest. Um, There's the, the Hastings exclusive, which is a really nice illustration, an action shot of Kirk, Spock, and Bones. There's, of course, the one that everyone has seen that is the upper left portion of the four-cover image, which is Kirk. But then there is the special edition Enterprise one. I do really like this cover. It's really nice. Uh, It is going to be very hard to get a hold of. Um, It is being sold online, and it is only going to have 1,701 copies. So uh, if you are somebody who really enjoys collecting hard-to-get comics, this is going to be one that you're going to want to have. Um, we will have in the show notes where you can go and uh, look to see if it's still available and, and able to order. You can order it in the UK and in the US. They have the different distributors who are going to be doing that. Um but yeah, this is a beautiful cover, a great shot of the Enterprise um, with Kirk behind it and a planet. And so very well done. Um, I do wish these covers had also come with the digital copy. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you know, normally they put all of the covers in the digital copy. But in this case, there is no Enterprise cover in the digital copy, which makes sense, of course, because they want it to be very special and these digital comics now are HD for the retina display on the iPad. So if you take a screenshot, it's a pretty large image. So someone could take a screenshot and then print that out. And it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as valuable, of course. But I think that to make this truly special, they did want to omit that from the digital. And it's, it's 1,701 copies worldwide I expect that it will go in a flash. By the time this show drops, it probably will already be gone. But of course, people will be reselling them as collectibles online. So if you really, really want to get your hands on one, you'll probably be able to, provided you want to dish over for it. I think it's going to cost more than $3.99, though, (laughs) on the the secondhand market. Now, there is a possibility that we are going to talk about next um, that the collection of all four countdown and darkness comics will come out in trade paperback as it always does um but that'll be coming out april 23rd and this might have those special copy i mean those special covers in there um i know that the volume editions for the ongoing comics have collected all of the different covers that they've used um even the specialty ones and so this may be something that they might do with that, even with the digital copy. I'm not sure, just speculation, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, if you really wanted them and you didn't get them, obviously, because you might not near, live near Hastings, you might not have been able to get the 1701 copy, um, maybe they'll put it in there for the rest of us. And uh, it might be an incentive then for everyone to want to buy the trade paperback or the collection edition, even though they might have the singles. Yeah, I could see them putting it 
inside the book. Yeah, in a collection like that. Now, that's going to be a paperback, correct? So hardcover, I could definitely see them doing it as a special thing. Uh, but yeah, maybe it'll be in there. It wouldn't have the same collectible impact that it has being the cover of the individual comic. So they might feel that, yeah, let's go ahead and put that in there to make it a complete collection. Yeah, I, I could see them doing that. So um, who knows? Um, honestly, though, IDW has been very good about giving you those specialty covers that you just may not have been able to find before in their yeah. volume collections. And yeah. especially when they were first doing volume one and volume two, they had some really great posters, you know, for enlisting in Starfleet. And, those um, are really nice. They really are. There's some, I'm, some of them are better than others, but some of those are so fantastic. I would love to have full-size posters of those hanging around the studio here. Exactly. In fact, they remind me in the same way how I'd like to have some of our Trek FM artwork be hanging in my room. <laughs> well, that might happen one of these days. Just uh, hang in there. All right. <laughs> well, let's move on to other upcoming things. Now, again, when we talk about comic releases, we're always talking so far ahead of time. We're going to talk about what's coming in April now. And while the Star Trek ongoing is in countdown to darkness mode while they're telling the story leading up to the movie instead of retelling or branching off from original series stories as they have been up to this point they are going to be continuing this trend of telling the backstory of characters and you know we deep space nine fans we love to talk about the bromance between miles and jewels and it looks like in star trek number 20 we're going to be focusing on a classic brewing bromance here as they take on Sulu and Chekhov. What do you think about that, Matthew? Have you ever thought about Sulu and Chekhov in quite that way before? You know, I have in Star Trek V when they're walking together and they're just enjoying the day. They're completely lost, but they, they don't really care. Oh, Their hair right. is, you know, being gently swathed in the breeze as it's being feathered lightly in the Yosemite air. And so, yes, I I, th- I think this is an even more special uh, relationship because, I mean, have you seen Chekhov's hair in the new uh, <laughs> JJ verse? I mean, this is some no. good stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, Sulu cannot even compete. No. Now you're talking about Chekhov's hair in the movie, right? You're not talking about... Abrams verse mirror Chekhov's hair from the mirrored comic where he has that weird kind of mohawk thing going on, right? No, not talking about that. Just talking <laughs> about the normal JJ verse, you know, not going to go into the mirror. We did that last week. Yeah, um, he's got some yeah, real think, curls going on, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. So, you know, these two guys are going to get their due here. Um, they are going to, uh, we're going to see their first meeting at Starfleet Academy and just kind of how they're, uh, lives intertwined before they ended up on the Enterprise. So who knows what could happen here? I mean, you know, we we might see a double date. Um, this might be that Bosom Buddies comic that is actually going to be, they're going to do their, their own branch off. So this actually might be the start of Star Trek Bosom Buddies. It could be. I bet they bump into each other in the Academy cafeteria. And then like you said, we see them go out on a double date with the Delaney sisters, great, great grandmothers. That would be, 
Yeah, you know, tie it in. We we want continuity across the centuries. <laughs> I would really love to see that. Um, you know, I think that the Delaney sisters, um, generations of them have been good looking, and Sulu and Chekhov are, you know, none too shabby. So that, I think this is a good idea. Star Trek Bosom Buddies, Sulu and Chekhov, New Adventures. <laughs> All right, so that's coming anyway. Uh, as usual, thirty-two pages, three ninety-nine in April. Uh, then there's also the Star Trek John Byrne collection, which we talked about a few shows ago. Uh, a hardcover, fifty bucks, but three hundred twenty pages, which is really nice. I mean, even the artwork alone. The covers are looking beautiful. Great mock-ups here. I really like the work that they've done on that. But this is some good stuff. I mean, these are going to collect the Assignment Earth Adventures of Gary Seven. It's also going to have the uh, Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor, the Romulans, as well as um, Crew, which recounts tales from the very beginning of the United Federation of Planets. Uh, So these are some really great comics that are going to be collected. And, And, of course, we know... Amazon is not going to have this at forty nine ninety nine. I'm sure it'd probably be more like thirty two, yeah, something like right. that. Um, so this is going to be something that's going to be really beautiful. Um, they're going to give this to us uh, in an oversized hardcover edition. So they're putting a lot into this collection, and I think this is going to be one that I'm going to be really tempted to pick up here. Yeah, it will be very tempting. Uh, you mentioned the cover. I I love this cover design with, with the ships. In the shape of the Delta, it's another. I need more wall space in here because I'd like to have this as a poster as well. Maybe I should start putting posters on the ceiling. Well, I mean, you know, I can see back there, Chris. You've got plenty of room for posters. You just need to make it look like a TGI Fridays in there. (laughs) Maybe. You know, just get enterprises, you know, plastered to the wall. and Yeah. So I think you can do it. I think it'd be good. And then I could have chili cheese fries on hand at all times. So just get yeah, that real exactly. TGI Fridays vibe in here. Yeah. Um, just make sure you're wearing enough flair. <laughs> so this th- this one will be nice. Well, I, are you planning on, this is a completely off question, but are you planning on getting the new Botany Bay poster by uh, Bye Bye Robot? Well, I'd like to, but unfortunately, Bye Bye Robot cannot ship their posters internationally. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Hmm. Well, um, I guess if, we know what your crew is they... going to be getting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys sent me that beautiful Ryza poster. I love that thing. That was so nice. All right. So that's the John Byrne collection. Again, that will be coming out in April as well. And then there is the Star Trek Spanning Treasury Edition, which is going to bring together... In a big format, three issues from the ongoing telling uh, complete stories. We're going to have Return of the Archons. We're going to have a Red Shirt's Tale, which was the uh, individual comic. So Return of the Archons was a double issue. Red Shirt's Tale was a single issue. So they're going to bring those three together in a in a 72-page special edition, uh, which, as they say, it is a big format. It's Nine and a quarter by 14 and a quarter inches. I think this is a really interesting idea. I mean, we were just talking about how much we enjoy the artwork, um, especially with some of the covers. And this just gives you an opportunity to have some of that artwork 
be blown up, and especially uh, Return of the Archons, there was some great artwork in that comic, especially when they went underground and then you saw right. the old ship there yes. and on the wall. That was fantastic work. So this definitely deserves to be in a larger format. And who knows, you know, they may um, do this for more comics if this is successful. And it's only nine ninety nine, so that's not a bad deal. Um, no, not bad at especially all. Especially for the comic collector. Yeah, you're right about Return of the Archons, especially, yes, when they go underground and, and the saucer is there in the back. It's kind of like an altar. This is really beautifully done artwork. I, I've been kind of mixed. You know, they've shifted art styles through ongoing a little bit as they've gone along. Some of them I've liked better than other ones. Return of the Archons definitely was one of the ones that had fantastic art. It's definitely, um, they are following the pattern of, of all the major... Uh, comic book companies you know superman goes through different artists uh, all the characters go through it you know their different artist phase of who's doing them and so some you end up liking better than others and you're right some of these i have really liked uh better than others like i really enjoyed the last mere universe look uh the artwork in there i thought was beautiful except for a few of the minor details that we found that were off otherwise that was a really good representation, I thought, of those universes. Yeah, well, I, I rate the art style of each issue or the style of each artist is basically who can illustrate Uhura so that she's hotter than in other issues. That's basically how hot is Uhura. That's my skill for art styles. Well, and then I think we agree because that first issue of the Mirror Universe, Uhura was probably at her hottest she's been, so. All right, well, that wraps up news. We just had a few items in news today. So let's go ahead and talk about Countdown to Darkness number one. Now, this is a spoiler alert. We are going to really talk about the story, and we're actually going to reveal the twist that's at the end. So if you have not read this yet, go ahead and pause or skip this part and go read it and then come back and listen and see if you share our thoughts. I should also take this moment just to point out, uh, because there are several ways you can listen to this show. If you get the iTunes version of this show, which is enhanced, we do put chapter markers for everything that we're talking about. So it makes it very easy for you to skip over stories if you you don't want to have spoilers, but you want to hear what's coming up next. So um, be sure to... uh, grab that edition if you can. Uh, and and you don't necessarily have to use iTunes to get that edition. You can use Downcast, which is a fantastic app. And you can actually subscribe to the RSS feed directly without going through iTunes, and you'll still get all those chapters. So if you are uh, you know, not an iTunes user, you're not um, necessarily going to have to miss out on that. Okay, so that's our spoiler alert. So Matthew, let's talk about Countdown to Darkness number one. Well, I want to start before the story even starts. And we had talked about how much time has passed between the movie and now this Countdown into Darkness comic. So from the 09 JJ universe to this. Before the comic even starts, it gives us a little blurb, kind of giving us what's been happening. If you haven't been reading ongoing, it says in the months since the defeat of the Romulan terrorist. There's only been months. This is very interesting. I thought at least maybe a year might have passed, but 
they're not giving a ton of time between movies here. So I'm very surprised about that. What do you think about that, Chris? Honestly, I think that it is someone other than Mike Johnson writing the synopsis. And they wrote in the months since the defeat of the Romulan terrorist Nero. Because it doesn't add up for me. We've had all of these issues of ongoing. We've had all these missions that they've gone on. It has to be more than months since they defeated Nero and what we're seeing in this comic. Unless this happens prior to all the other stories in ongoing, which I really don't think is the case. I think um, my girlfriend brought this up and I thought this was smart. What we need to do is we need to see what the star date was for the 09 movie. And then whatever the star date is for the new movie, we'll be able to hopefully tell how much time has passed. Um, But I do agree with you. I feel like, you know, even in the very first ongoing issue, we get the feeling from Scotty when he's talking to himself in engineering or to Keenzer um, that there has been at least a few months that they've been out in space since um, Nero happened. So that's a few months in itself. Okay, well, actually, and we'll mix up just a little bit here because later we're going to talk about uh, ongoing in a little bit more depth. In ongoing number one, Kirk makes the statement that he has been captain of the Enterprise for less than a year. So the story of where no man has gone before He's saying that he's been captain for less than a year. And I did a little math because I wanted to compare that to the original Where No Man Has Gone Before story. And in both cases, Kirk has been captain of the Enterprise for a little bit less than a year, about a year. So I'll jump into that more when we talk about ongoing. But because he makes that statement in the first issue of Star Trek Ongoing, and now we're getting to countdown to darkness, and the little blurb at the beginning is saying months makes me really think that this is a copy error and that the actual story here is taking place further along. I I agree with that. I really, I feel like that that was one of those things that just got by him. And so that's a very interesting thing that you notice because to tell you the truth, I didn't notice that when I read this because I skipped over that little blurb that is on the credits page at the beginning. And I went straight into the story. Well, the story starts with Spock, and Spock is having what we come to see is is a dream. Um, What do you think about Spock still kind of reliving this? If this has been, you know, more than a year, uh, Spock still carrying around this much trauma from Vulcan. um, What do you think about that, Chris? That's a good question. I like the way that they handled this because... It's not quite clear at first, you know, that this is a, you almost think we've been thrown into so many like alternate realities that you start into this and you almost think like, okay, what's going on here? Uh, There's, there's Amanda, there's what's going on. As far as what I think about the fact that he has been carrying around this emotional burden of the death of his mother, the destruction of Vulcan for this long I think it's interesting. I, I in the Prime Universe, I like the Spock of the Undiscovered Country. I like the Spock of Unification, this older, wiser Spock who has found a way to accept the fact that he has an illogical, emotional side 
because he's half human. I like that better than the Spock of early TOS, which is very cut and dry, logical, very robotic, a lot like Tuvok is on Voyager. I think that what they're setting up in the Abrams verse, and a lot of people will not agree with me because in a way people think they're bastardizing the character of Spock, but it allows them to tell a more interesting story about Spock and it allows them to explore the impact and the consequences of such a tragic event happening in someone's life. And how could you take something like that and balance it against a logical approach to the world? So I find it interesting. I think it's a good move. Well, and it reminds me of what we were talking about with David Mack when you come to that realization that the universe in the end is meaningless because all of time will cease to exist. And no matter what kind of logic you put on it, it becomes illogical. And so I think Spock is really dealing with that in a way that's um, a lot quicker than he has to in the Prime Universe. You know, I think in the Prime Universe, it takes him dying um, and this kind of illogical nature of his friends bringing him back to kind of push him into what he says to Valeris, you know, logic, logic is only the beginning, you know, um, he's talking about having faith, you know, and that the universe should unfold as, as it should, you know, that the universe will just unfold in the way that it should. And so, um, that's a man who, who has thought not just logically about things, but almost deeply emotionally as well. So right. I think they might be giving us a little bit of that with this Spock and moving him forward just a little bit quicker than the prime Spock gets a chance to. Right. Well, definitely, I think that, and I don't know if we'll get to see this. Maybe we'll see it in the comics. I don't think we'll nece- we won't necessarily get to see it on screen as much because even if they do four films... There's just not enough time to focus on Spock's development alone like you would in a TV series. But this Spock, I think, if you were to jump in the case from the beginning to the undiscovered country, what is it, like 20 years of time on the ship? I believe that passes, uh, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I think something like that. This Spock would turn out to be a completely different person. And he's going to be a much more emotional, much more human Spock than the Spock that we knew from the prime universe. Because, you know, the the events that took place, it simply changes the trajectory of your life, changes the trajectory of his life in this case. And and there's no way around that. Well, and, and that much emotional trauma for somebody who is half human is going to affect this Spock in a way that, yes, he, he's going to have yeah. so much more emotion to him and so i do think that's interesting too that uh you know the beginning here you're you're seeing that this is also having an effect on his relationship with uhura right Um, they're not spending as much time together because he's being troubled so deeply his sleep patterns they're off um, everything's off and he honestly doesn't want to talk about it with her anymore he just wants kind of a scientific fix which he says he's going to go talk to dr mccoy right so i think it's important to talk about this 
we're talking about Spock in a lot of depth here, but I think it's important to talk about it just because this particular comic is leading directly into the movie. And so the Spock that we see in the movie may be a much more conflicted, much more emotional Spock than we're used to seeing. Definitely. And I was wondering too, you know, he does say, you know, I'm just going to go talk to Dr. McCoy about it. So I'm kind of hoping that too, this will give us a little bit of that piece of some of that good old Spock McCoy banter. But this gives them the opportunity, I think, to make them even closer friends than they were in the Prime Universe. Um, And maybe not be at odds so much because this Spock is a little bit more like Bones. And I think that that makes for a really interesting story arc. Yeah, maybe so. It it would be interesting. I don't know if I like that path or not, uh, because I, I like the relationship that Spock and Bones have in the original series in the Prime Universe. But yeah, we'll see where that goes. Well, moving on through here, let's go beyond Spock here. One thing I found interesting reading this was that some of the visuals that we've seen in the teaser trailers immediately started making sense, especially where the red planet is concerned. Yeah, um, that was very interesting. Um, I'm wondering, this planet doesn't look like the same planet that they're on, at least when they land, Um, because there isn't any of that foliage but maybe it's right. on the other side of the planet. I'm not sure. I, I was wondering the same thing. Is this the same planet that we're used to seeing in the trailer? Is it not? Is it a completely different planet? Which, you know, with this being four issues, this can definitely be a completely yeah, different planet. It could be. And so, yeah, it could be, or it could be the same planet. It's Yeah, it is hard to tell for sure. But at least I felt like there was some connection there like i I was starting to fill in the blanks yeah yes (laughs) i did like the one thing you know kirk always says that he has one woman and her name is enterprise yeah there's a whole scene in here where kirk is talking to the computer and he says to himself i can't believe i'm talking to the ship's computer because that's the only person he's found that he can talk to in the ship there's no counselors here and so i just loved that He's commiserating with the only woman he can commiserate with right now, and that's the Enterprise. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That is true. So as we go along through here, the next big turning point is actually towards the end of the comic where, you know, they they crash on this planet. They think that there is nothing. I mean, I guess they detect that there's some sort of civilization here. But a primitive one, you know, there's the whole debate over whether they should investigate or not and whether it violates the prime directive. And but when they finally do get down on the planet, they encounter some hostility using technology that shouldn't exist here. Which I I don't know if you noticed, but I really liked it that um, these aliens, the tricorder that they're using has that leather strap on it. Yeah, It kind of looks more like the original series. So I thought that was a nice homage to what we've seen before. Well, is it an homage or is it something more? Which we're about to talk about because, Chris, I think you are about to drop the mother on this. (laughs) I think you're about to drop something really awesome. So why don't you tell our listeners what we talked about on the other side of the room? 
Well, okay, so let's go on to the last page. This is the twist. Now, we've all been wondering who Benedict Cumberbatch is playing. And I do think they're still trying to throw us off the track here. But when you get to the last page, who steps forward but Robert April? Captain Robert April, captain of the Enterprise. I haven't, I don't recall hearing anyone mention Robert April as the possible villain in the movie. I I don't think so. Um, you know, it makes me, I mean, I got to this page and my mind pretty much exploded all over the walls of my room. I was like, oh my goodness, they have thrown us a huge curveball. I think this is awesome. If this is what the movie is going to be like, then sign me up now because this is great. But it made me think, okay, we have had no idea who Peter Weller is playing in this film. Right. Is he Robert April? Because that's right. that would just be incredible, I yeah. think. I think that's a better guess. Now, I don't think Benedict Cumberbatch is playing Robert April. But yes, Peter Weller could be playing Robert April. But what's even more interesting here, and when you talk about the tricorder look, is that, and a lot of fans may not know this because a lot of fans never got into the animated series, but after Robert April was captain of the Enterprise, he became an ambassador at large, and eventually he was forced to retire from Starfleet. But in the animated series episode, The Counterclock Incident, April is back on the Enterprise. Now, at this point, he's a Commodore, and he is a passenger on the Enterprise. And what happens in the story is that they get thrown into a negative universe, and then April has to save the ship, and the crew is aging and all. But anyway, the details of that story aren't really what's so important to me here. What is important to me is that in the Prime Universe timeline, there is this incident in which April is thrown into another universe. And we've seen how the Abrams verse likes to mix the universes together. We've had Prime Spock coming through in the 2009 movie. And then we just had an ongoing, we just had the mirrored issue, which we talked about last week as being a story in Scotty's head as he tries to explain things to Bones. But could that issue also have served the purpose of reminding us that these universes can cross over? What What do you think about this? Well, Chris, I, I honestly think that this is a really good theory. I think um, this is the kind of thing that I think that um, Ortsy and Kurtzman sit around and do. They yeah. just, they've watched, I think, so much Trek we can see that and and the way that they homage to all sorts of different track. I mean, even in 09, uh, there are homages to almost every single incarnation of Trek, whether it's Deep Space Nine, TNG, Voyager, all of them kind of get referenced somehow in the film. And so they've definitely done their homework. I think that this would be the kind of thing that could make fanboys squee like no other. I mean, we're talking... <laughs> You know, this is the kind of thing that fanboys really appreciate. You know, other people, when they go see the film, they're just going to enjoy it for what it is. But this is the kind of thing that really makes fans happy. And if that's what they're going to do, this makes me extremely excited for this story. Even if Robert April just has something to do with the Countdown into Darkness part of the story and not necessarily the film, 
I still think it's a fantastic idea to really draw the fans in and get them excited. It is, yeah. It, even if even if my speculation that this could be Robert April from the Prime Universe who ended up on this planet and changed the, the course of development in the alternate universe, even if that's wrong, just simply having Robert April in here is a great twist and shows, like you said, that Orsia and Kurtzman and Lindelof, they, they do know Star Trek. They know all these little details. And people were very concerned that they were going to do something really straightforward, like retell the Wrath of Khan in the next movie. But what they demonstrate over and over is that they're able to cherry pick these little fanboy details and work them into this alternate timeline in a way that, like you said, makes fanboys happy and makes them squeal. But it also creatively is, they're not simply copying what came before. There, there, there is a good creative thought process going on behind the scenes here. Well, and if we did learn anything from uh, from 09, it's that they weren't trying just to copy what had been done before. And I think it would have been a huge disservice, and I think it will be a huge disservice to all the fans, and even to the film itself, if that was just a redo of, of The Wrath of Khan. Right. Um, you know, our esteemed colleague Charlene said it on The Ready Room this week during the news. You know, nobody really wants to see a retread of Khan. Khan's been done. It's been done great. It's been... Be- done amazingly it can't be redone and this i think though gives them an opportunity to create a villain and their own universe by using all the fun toys from the original universe and this is really original um and i can definitely see peter weller playing uh robert april if that's the case i think that's a good choice yeah um this definitely doesn't look like benedict cumberbatch in the artwork he looks older he's grayed so i don't think that that's going to be the same character uh but even if it was uh, i mean really cool yeah maybe he finds a way to regenerate himself who knows because he apparently has super mind powers we do know that part so yeah yeah so i don't think that cumberbatch is april but Another thing here, so we have the tricorder style, which looks like it's the TOS from the Prime Universe, which, you know, maybe that's a little hint that, yes, this is April from the other universe. The uniform that he's wearing, the tunic underneath, does not have the pattern of the Abramsverse tunics. It looks more like the Prime Timeline tunics. But the jacket he's wearing over it does have the texture, so... I don't know what to do. It make reminds of me of do you remember the original Enterprise away uniform jacket? That's yeah. what that jacket reminds me of. That te- that's that texture that that had. Ah, like from um, from the cage. So, uh no no no, from the original uh Star Trek Enterprise Scott Bakula. Oh um, yeah. Their original uniform um their away jacket had that okay. texture to it. Okay. If I don't, if you remember, and so this reminds me of that textured jacket that they kind of stopped using, and they they used a much kind of easier version for them to make for the the cast, um, with with some modifications. Because the textures here are they're not the Delta pattern of the Abrams verse; they're more like a circular pattern, which again could simply be for the art style. We may be completely yeah. 
take a look at that Enterprise. Um, it's from um, Broken Bow, their original away jacket. Okay, yeah. And when they go down to Rigel Tim. And it has kind of this texture to Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. this one just looks like a like a biker version of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of countdown number one. And I have to say it's really well written. You know, we, we just brushed on basically the emotional turmoil of Spock, the basics of the mission, conflict with the prime directive, and then the twist with Robert April at the end. But uh, definitely, well, I hope if you've listened this far, you've already read it and you heeded our spoiler warning at the beginning of this. It's very well written. I was surprised and also very happy after I read it. Yeah, I highly recommend this for the fans. Uh, If you're very excited about the film or you're maybe even on the fence about the film right now, I was kind of on the fence, um, honestly, seeing the previews. After this comic, I'm really sold. Um, Like you said, it is very well written. I enjoyed the artwork in it. The twist at the end makes me think that these guys totally understand Star Trek in a way that I hoped that they would. And they have been promising, you know, JJ said, this is a film, our goal is to make you cry. Um, So we made you blind in the first film, now we're going to make you cry with your blind eyes. I I think they really want to make a good movie, not just for normal people, but they really seem to be going out of their way to make us fans happy. And I'm excited about that. So we're not normal people, are we? (laughs) No, we... We are not. I mean, you're thinking about flying all the way from Japan to Vegas for a convention. I don't think that's normal. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I I was really happy with this. Um, Okay, so let's close out our show today by talking a little bit about Star Trek Ongoing, because it does, again, tie into the movie, even though it's not part of the actual countdown series itself. And we're going to touch on the first three of those, which covered original series episodes and retold them. And what I found interesting about the approach here, and again, I thought it was smart, was that they began the series by retelling Where No Man Has Gone Before, and they played it very straight. Very few changes. Then with the next story, they changed a bit more. And then with the next story, they changed a bit more. So they kind of eased fans into the divergence of the prime timeline and the alternate timeline. One of the best ways that they changed these comics were ways that made sense with this universe. You know, it wasn't just, we're going to change it to change it so we can be different, but they were very logical changes that made sense that this is the JJ verse. And because of the things that happen in Star Trek 09, this is the way that this story would play out. And so I think that that really um, was a service to the fans, um, but it also helped, like you said, very slowly to help show how different that this universe is. And um, yeah, we're going to start out with the same type of mission, but even by the time we get to the end of this one, they're diverging. Um, And I think that the way that they do really made sense and i think that they've been saying that if you read the first comic series where no man gone before that there was a hint a kind of a clue dropped in yeah 
about what was going to happen in the new film. Okay, so let's talk about that because I was looking for really, really subtle clues. And as I said a number of times on The Ready Room, what I latched onto was the simple fact that Daner wasn't in the story because I had been feeling that Alice Eve was playing Daner because she looks so much like Daner. And actually on page 24 in Ongoing Number 1, there's that scene where Kirk and Spock and Bones are walking down the corridor. And Kirk says, Bones, where's the psychologist who joined us at Aldebaran? Daner, wasn't it? She might be able to help. And Bones says, "We, uh, she withdrew her transfer. Guess she had a change of heart. And then Kirk says, Bones, don't tell me. And Bones says, it was a long time ago. I thought she'd forgiven me. And I just found that interesting because there's the implication that Kirk and Daner has some kind of past history in the prime timeline. But here they're making it sound like McCoy and Daner have some kind of past history. And then she wasn't on the ship, so she couldn't die at the end of the comic. And so they could easily bring her back into the movie. But again, that's like a really, really subtle thing. So now tell me what you think is the clue to the movie. Well, I am going to latch on real quick to that because I think that she could still be into Star Trek Into Darkness. We we have heard that, you know, John Harrison is somebody who has extreme um, mind powers. He seems to be very smart, intelligent, but also have those kind of ESP abilities and so they could still use Daner. She just might, she's obviously not Alice Eve. That's Carol Marcus, they've already said. Right. But she still could be in this movie and give us the ability to have a little bit of growth and knowledge of, of Bones. Yeah. Um, and hey, maybe she's the reason that Bones doesn't have anything left but his Bones. Right. And he joins Starfleet. So, I mean, there's a whole storyline that could still happen there. Before we get to the movie, on that point, they're going to do the comic that is the backstory of Bones, right? We're going to find out how Bones came to be in the Starfleet. So some of that could be revealed in ongoing before the movie actually hits theaters. Which I'm very excited to read. Bones was my favorite character in the film. Um, in this movie. And so I'm very excited to see this. Now, the part that I latched onto here, I was, I was thinking, I guess I, I think thematically doing the, the book reviews and I came across this scene where it is very different from the original episode. When Kirk goes to confront Mitchell, you see Mitchell just by himself because Daner's not there anymore. And Mitchell is going on about being a god at this point. And he says, I can change your world on a whim. Remember this. And he has the scene where Kirk is splayed out on the table being, you know, getting his ass kicked um, at the beginning of Star Trek 09. And he says, or what about this? And he shows um, Kirk sitting there taking a test and saying, um, remember you know, taking all these exams and you got to that point where you're wishing your pal Gary was there to give you the answers. You get this feeling in this that Gary is taunting him saying, you weren't ready to be given captain of the Enterprise. It should have been me. And now I'm greater than you are. So this theme of Kirk not being ready, we do see 
in the trailer itself of Pike telling Kirk, look, you are a great captain in the sense that you have great instincts. You've got what it takes, but you have no humility and you're going to get everyone killed. Uh, I think that this idea, this thread is what's going to be another kind of thematic element that's run through the fact that, yes, Kirk has amazing talent and just raw energy of what it means to be a captain, but that's got to get refined. And even Pine has talked about that in some interviews. So I think that that may be one of the other things that they've dropped in here that's going to get picked up in the next film. Yeah, it's... I still can't shake this feeling that Cumberbatch is playing Gary Mitchell. It it doesn't all add up to me. There's so many different parts and it doesn't all add up. And at at the end of ongoing number two, the conclusion of where no man has gone before, unlike in the original episode where uh, Daner and Mitchell are left behind on the planet. Of course, Daner's not here at this point. Mitchell is is killed by Spock and they take him back to the ship and they actually launch his body out into space in a torpedo casing as we saw them do with Spock in at the end of the Wrath of Khan. So Mitchell wasn't left behind on that planet. You know, I had been thinking like did Mitchell really die? You know, or is this like a zombie Mitchell coming back? Is he coming back? He had these godlike powers, so maybe Kirk thought he was dead, but he's not. Is he coming back? And he's using the name John Harrison as a cover. I, I'm still having trouble believing that the villain's name is actually John Harrison. I think it's something that they're using as a pseudonym right now to continue to throw us off track. But I could be wrong about that as well. I honestly think that is a really good hypothesis. I know some people might be upset, you know, thinking, well, they gave us this in the comic and it, you know, why would they give it to us and then just bring him back? But, yeah. you know, we've seen people come back from torpedo tubes before, you know. So yeah. um, it happened to Spock. It could happen to Mitchell. And, you know, the kind of powers that he possesses in this almost seem greater than they did in the original series episode anyway. Yeah. And so it's there's the, a good chance that that could be the case. It's the powers and it's the vendetta against Kirk and the feeling that Starfleet wronged him and he has come back for revenge that makes this character of John Harrison fit Mitchell for me. But then again, I don't know how you combine Mitchell and, and April and then Klingons. I don't know how all that ties together. Well, you know, usually I think what they did is they just threw everything into a blender and... <laughs> They just see what comes out. And That's I, I the think that frappe to darkness, right? Yes, exactly. Um, it was made by Starbucks. It's excellent. <laughs> so we'll find out where this is leading. Um, another thing I thought was interesting about the comic where no man has gone before was just simply figuring out the timeline because They played the story really, really straight. There are very few differences. The biggest difference is that Daner is missing. Um, Small differences, of course, Chekhov is on board where he wasn't in the original. Uh, Keenzer is there. And of course, Spock runs over to check on Uhura to make sure she's okay. Because, you know, if the ship shakes, you got to hug the Uhura. But apart from that, 
I was just doing some math on the timeline because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Kirk had been captain of the Enterprise for a little less than a year in Where No Man Has Gone Before. In the comic, he says at the beginning, I've been captain of the Enterprise for a little less than a year. Now, in the in both timelines, Kirk was born in 2233. But in the original timeline, Kirk became captain of the Enterprise in 2264. He was 31 years old. In the comic, he becomes captain of the Enterprise in 2258 when he's 25 years old because he enters the Academy in 2255 and he does it in three years, just like you told Pike he would. So there's this six-year age difference, but yet we're seeing the same stories playing out. So there's this kind of temporal discrepancy between the events in these two universes. I just find that interesting. That is interesting, especially since I know from, I guess we see from the Mirror Universe, especially in the Deep Space Nine episodes, that there's definitely a huge discrepancy in what happens yeah. um, in these universes. And so once they diverge, you know, they really are on their own path. And so it definitely seems that, you know, in our JJ universe now, everything has diverged to the point where everything's going to be different. And that's why they start off with the comics, I think, giving us almost an exact replay, not quite but then they come fully diverge. And so yeah. you're not going to, everything else is just going to kind of snowball from there. They diverge, but it's the same events are happening to all the same people six years earlier, which mm. from a, from a theoretical scientific, theoretical point of view, it's kind of interesting as well, but well, let's go on to ongoing number three and number four, which is a retelling of the Galileo seven and see what we pick up here that's different and what we think might possibly tie in to the movie. Uh, One thing I noticed that I was happy to see, and I hope I see in the movie, is that Yeoman Rand is there. Yes, I really enjoyed that. I thought, uh, you know, it was something that they just seemed to kind of thrown in there as an enjoyment for the fanboys. Um, But I, I really appreciated that they remembered yeoman rand she was a great character in the original series unfortunately obviously uh, she couldn't continue with the show because of personal reasons um but this was fun and i i do hope that she does show up in the movie because there was always something there between her and kirk and that could be an interesting thing to explore it somewhat in the films so so you want to see kirk and Carol Marcus, their relationship in the movie, and then you want to see a jealous Yeoman Rand over on the corner of the bridge. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, I'm. I'm really expecting this to be like your classic Friends episode, you know, where somebody's you know in love with somebody else, but there's one of their friends that's in love with them, and yeah, I'm. I'm picturing that this is just like the Friends reunion um, on the Enterprise. So maybe so. they could get Lisa Kudrow to play Rand. That would be great. Um, although <laughs> she um, is just a few years older than Chris Pine now. Um, and so she would be an older Rand. And I would feel bad if, you know, she was still 
a yeoman at that point in her career. <laughs> that, 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 that's true. Uh, I, I like, like you said, it kind of came out of nowhere how they just throw Rand into the comic. And what I like about that panel is that the Galileo 7, it crashes and Spock is checking if everyone's okay. But Spock turns his head and he sees Rand there and he says, Yeoman Rand? With a question mark. And he's asking, Yeoman Rand, are you okay? But it also feels a little bit like he's surprised to see her there. Like, Yeoman Rand? I thought you weren't on the show anymore. What's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that that was funny. It, It... You know, it's great for those of us who really know TOS and um, we can enjoy just, like you said, throwing this kind of character out there and be able to take that as kind of a double meaning. Wait, you're not supposed to be in this episode. And I I really do think it was written as a double meaning. I think it was a little in-joke that was thrown in the comic, which which I love. Definitely. Um, So this story plays out fairly close it starts to diverge a little bit you know in terms of like who goes out to explore the planet um and the artwork is fantastic in here i have to say especially uh the scene where latimer gets the spear passed through his body he's in silhouette i mean it's really fantastic work the other thing that I really enjoyed is that where they do diverge here is the conversation between Spock and McCoy about, you know, Bones kind of egging on Spock saying, hey, you know this bothers you that you're not captain, you know, and now it's your big chance to prove yourself as, you know, the man in charge. And Spock's very much telling him, I don't really care whether I'm captain or not captain. You know, it was logical for Kirk to become captain after the events that brought us all together, which, as you were talking about, this is six years before. um, And it's interesting how Spock talks about this idea of the events that bring us together. There's something in every universe that is bringing this crew together almost as if they were kind of destined to be together and even prime spock talks about the importance that the relationship between spock and kirk and how they need each other and he has no idea yet how much they need each other and i just think that's a very interesting idea this that something behind the universe is putting these people together over and over again right it it is and speaking of Spock, that's kind of where the big twist comes in here. And again, as we talked about earlier, highlights how this Spock is different than the Spock that we're accustomed to. You know, in the original episode, Spock is very rigid in his command style. He's, you know, debating who would have to be left behind. It's very analytical. And here, well, of course, in the original series episode, he does make that decision at the last moment to uh, release the fuel and make the ship visible to the Enterprise, which is very visible in the remastered. In the original version of that (laughs) episode, I'm not really quite sure how the Enterprise spotted the shuttle, but anyway. But in here, he actually is willing to sacrifice himself to get the shuttle and the rest of the crew back into orbit. And that's something that... I guess the prime Spock, I mean, we know from the end of Wrath of Khan, he's willing to sacrifice himself if it's the logical solution. 
But what we see here, I feel like he's actually going against what most people would consider the logical solution. It, it feels like an emotional decision that he's making. I think that you're right. And I think that this is just one of the ways that they're continuing to show us the progression of Spock in this universe is different. Um, and it's giving us a more interesting character because he has a lot more layers to him. Yeah. I also noticed that when the commissioner is trying to get Kirk to leave, there's that great moment where Uhura just looks at Kirk and Kirk looks at her and he almost gives her this like nonverbal sign. Go find them. Get me another way to be able to stay here. Yeah. Um, and I really I, I liked that, that there's there's already this kind of uh, interplay going on between the crew and Kirk and they're really getting to know each other. And I, I just really liked that. And I thought that that was great. And and of course, at the end, uh, you get this. <laughs> I've got better things to do than mess with you, Commissioner. We're going to be there on time. Leave me alone. Um, right. from Kirk and kind of blowing off a th- uh, that kind of authority figure that he just kind of trying to rain on his parade, oh. basically. When you said, and at the end, I thought you were going to mention the part where Kirk, as punishment, confines Spock and Uhura to shared confinement in Spock's quarters, quote, for a few hours, unquote. Well, Kirk knows that uh, Vulcans like to take their time. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they don't rush things, you know, lots of finger action to begin and so, uh, so, to finish. Just, so, right. Well, that's how the pun far works, right? We saw that in, in the search for Spock. So exactly. So you, you got to start that way. You got to end that way. You're saying that Vulcans are patient lovers. That's what you're telling us here, right? Why do you think Ohura is with Spock? <laughs> Speaking of Uhura in here, though, she does jump into action. And this is one of the big changes that I see in the Abrams verse is that Uhura isn't just this woman that sits at the communication station all the time and just kind of updates Kirk and doesn't have very much else to do. Here, they are portraying Uhura, I think, in a very modern way in terms of a woman in action. And uh, that definitely makes Uhura a more interesting character. For sure. And, you know, Uhura, for her time period in the 60s, was revolutionary. Um, this Uhura is is much more a product of, of today. And as we've seen for the trailers, Uhura is willing to kick some serious butt when she needs to. And so uh, she's going to be on this mission, apparently, with Kirk and Spock uh, on Kronos, facing down Harrison somehow. We don't know how, but definitely somebody who's not afraid to be carrying a phaser and, you know, backing up the captain. Now, not to say that Nichelle Nichols' original Uhura in the original series was timid. I mean, don't forget Mr. Adventure in Star Trek Three. you know. Exactly. He understood. He's got to get in the closet. And as Bones well, said, hey, I'm glad she's know, on our uh, side. Star Trek Five. she's not afraid to take it all off and make sure that people <laughs> aren't uh, paying attention to what's going on over there. Look over here. That's true. Okay, but, you know, I don't really see a lot of anything in this particular story that I think is a, a thread that they're going to pick up in the movie other than Uhura is a much stronger character, is ready to jump into action, and is more of an equal with her shipmates. And the fact that Spock 
makes his decisions based a bit more on emotion than we would be accustomed to for the Spock of this time period, this age in his life from the original universe. So let's go to the last thing we're going to talk about today, which is Operation Annihilate. But I have to just stop myself there because they took away my exclamation mark and it really turned me off to this from the moment I saw the cover. How can you take away my exclamation mark? I, I just, it made this uh, this one just so much more sad. And it did, you know, it just became really Operation Annihilate. Annihilate. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how can you annihilate somebody without annihilate? Exactly. I, I don't get it. But in terms of the story, what we got here was a serious divergence from what we had known before. Now, it starts off very, very similar. It starts off as they're going to investigate the planet, what's happening. There's this mass insanity that's sweeping the galaxy. But when they get down to the planet, they make a major discovery, which is that Kirk's brother, George Kirk, is still alive. If you remember, he actually was killed in the situation in the original episode. I thought that that was really interesting, and I liked that, uh, you know, the very beginning of the comic, they give us this picture of um, what happened right after Kirk had stolen the Corvette and threw it off into a quarry. Um, I I like that they answered the question why Kirk was living in this place in the first place, what had happened to his brother, you know, um, and give you a picture of his mother. Um, And I, I thought that that was really nice to get a picture of that. In fact, great little uh, Easter egg too. Um, you do see Archer's Enterprise as you well. Do. On yeah. the Yes. So um, it was nice to see that little homage to um, Scott Bakula's starship. And um, so I really did enjoy this beginning. I, I think um, of these three, this probably is the strongest for me story-wise. Um and I, I really liked to see getting inside Kirk um, that this is he's troubled as a as a boy because of the death of his his father. You know, the loss of a father is a big deal um, and it really has a way of changing a, a young man. And so and then, of course, you can see here he doesn't really have a strong male figure in his life to take over for that and. Gives you a perfect reason why he ends up, you know, bloodied at the bar every night because he doesn't have a lot to live for. And I, I liked them using that. The artwork in here is is gorgeous, I think, um, as well. Kirk sitting on his uh, roof looking up at the stars as a young child. I really, really like this beginning. Yeah, it is nice that they give us a backstory to Kirk. They fill in some of those blanks from the first movie. And things make a little bit more sense in terms of why he was the kind of person he was that we saw in the bar and who was confronted by Pike at that point. Um, What I wonder about here, tell me what you think about this, is that, you know, when they beam down and they, of course, they find the, which actually these guys look really cool in the comic. You know, I've always laughed in the original episode that the amoebae look like fried eggs, basically. And 
fried they're, eggs or weird pan crepes something, or something yeah strange. they're weird pan crepes yeah they're they're not <laughs> scary at all but in here these guys well they look like bubble gum but there's so many of them and the way that they latch onto your head i don't want that to happen to me not at all and i mean this is one of those things i felt they had done and kind of pulled from um the remastered TOS where they weren't trying to just make everything completely different and crazy. They wanted to pay, pay homage to what had been done before. And they really do a good job of making them creepier, scarier, and a little bit more realistic without completely redoing it. Um, yeah. And I really liked that. Yeah. And yeah. the only, and, and the other thing that they really do is, is that um, they just expand the world that they go to. Um, the outside of it looks fantastic, like, you know, you would expect a 23rd century place to look. And then the interiors here are much bigger, much scarier. Uh, and so I really like that. I think that does, you know, this shows what comics can do for a story. Right, right. That's something that, you know, Greg has talked about on the Ready Room when we've talked about comics. And, and actually, when we talked about this comic in particular on the Ready Room, how, because they don't have the budget constraint they are able to make these worlds feel so much larger and more real. And you're definitely right that in Operation Annihilate here, the surface and the facility and the city, they are all much more believable. And then when they go down inside and you see the the size and you see the level of infestation that's taking place by these creatures... It it feels a lot scarier than than it ever did on the TV show. Now, what I wanted to get your thoughts on, though, as we talk about possible movie tie-ins, is the revelation on the final page of issue number five, the first part of the story, that George Kirk is still alive. Do you think that George Kirk could appear in the movie? Do you think that George Kirk could have anything to do uh, with Kirk in Into Darkness. It might be really interesting if Into Darkness saw the death of his brother. Because Um, they do say the only family that Kirk has left, and they've established here in the comics that not only is his brother alive, but his sister-in-law is alive and he has a nephew. Right, and his mother's alive as well. And his mother's alive. Well, that's a flashback to when he's a child, so we don't know for sure. So, yeah. What's going on? We don't know for sure. Yeah. But it it just would, I think, be very interesting if somehow, um, you know, his brother and his his, uh, sister-in-law, his nephew, are all on maybe a ship or something, and they are victims of one of Harrison's attacks on his way to Earth, okay, or maybe yeah. victims of um, a Klingon attack that has been engineered by Harrison. That might be something very interesting. So there's a lot of different ways, I think, that you could do that and uh, really make this a very personal thing for Kirk Yeah, uh, in a way that Khan was very personal for Kirk. This could be very iconic um, and be the defining moment for um, this crew. And this um, makes me wonder if it just kind of might be the Empire Strikes Back for this trilogy. 
where everything is just really dark. Now, we have been told that just because this movie will be somewhat dark, that does not mean there won't be a happy ending. Right. So, you know, as dark as it gets, it does seem like there's going to be some definite resolution. But, man, that would be very interesting, I think, to have George Kirk maybe end up not survive. Right, yeah. And 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 maybe it's portrayed in the movie, or maybe it's part of the remaining three installments of the Countdown to Darkness comic. I'm not sure. What I do feel with the ongoing comics, though, is that they're not introducing twists like this just for the sake of making things different. Because it's, it's easy to feel that way. It's easy to feel like, well, we're just going to rehash stories and we're just going to change a couple of elements and call it a day. But I, I do believe, and, and I'm not a huge fan of the Abrams verse. I People asked me, don't you want to avoid knowing anything about the movie before you go see it? And I said, you know, I, I felt that way about movies like First Contact, for example. But I'm not actually invested enough in these characters in the Abrams verse to care all that much if I spoil anything for myself. So I'm, I'm not like a fanboy for Orsi and Kurtzman and J.J. Abrams. But I do think that they are unfairly criticized as people who don't care about Star Trek or don't understand Star Trek. I don't think that's the case. I think they know Star Trek well. I think they care about it. And I don't think that they make these changes just for the sake of making something different. I I feel like they are setting things up, if not for this movie, for for the longer story of this timeline. And I do feel like that in some of these comics, you are kind of seeing some of the... uh, TOS ideas of uh, kind of struggling through ideals and and morality and all those kind of things. Um, I think that's very interesting. You know, Kirk, even in this uh, issue and then the next issue, uh, has to deal with how to handle command and, you know, family at the same time. Right. Um, and I, I thought that was very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, he even beams down to the surface because he's not going to let any of his crew die for his brother and his family. Uh, so I thought that that was very interesting. Um, so you are seeing them kind of deal with some of those kind of morality tales a little bit. Yeah. Right. And, you know, as we talked about in Car- Countdown into Darkness, I think we're going to see uh, even more of that as that plays out. And then the film comes out. Um, I think that they're really maybe going to get into some of that. Because we've right. already seen, you know, the obligatory prime directive talk from Spock and in Countdown into Darkness. Yeah. So I, I think they're going to start dealing with some of those things. And and I, you're right. These these guys do know Star Trek. I think they care about it, and they are unduly criticized. And to me, that's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Well, it is in number six here. This story it doesn't completely go this way, but it does, like you say, become more about. Kirk balancing family and duty because the fact that George Kirk is still alive, the fact that James T. Kirk's brother, sister-in-law, nephew are in danger, the second half of the story does become a bit more about Kirk's relationship with his brother and with his family instead of simply being about this mass insanity that's sweeping the galaxy. So they, they do delve a bit more into character here than I think people give them credit for. 
and it's nice to see them telling character stories with these characters because they are different so they have the ability to kind of shape them and mold them in a way that is reflective of what we've seen in the prime universe but gives them a whole new way of approaching them and this is the kind of story that helps do that so this to me was honestly if i were to look at all of the ongoing comics i I honestly think that this was one of my favorites out of all of them because of the way that they wove the original story and then a completely new twist and gave me something new to think about with Kirk in this universe. They really do. So um, I'm sure if anyone's been listening to this point in the show, they're already into these comics. But if you are listening to this point and you're not into the comics yet and you didn't mind hearing spoilers because you felt like, you know, I don't really care that much about what's happening in there. I encourage you to pick these up. You know, you can get the past issues at, what are they in the U.S.? They're 85 yen in Japan, digital. I think it's like $1.99 on Comixology or any of the other. For the past uh, issues. The Star Trek Comics Act. Yeah. 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 So So, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. You know, pick them up and read them because they are telling good stories in these comics. Well, Matthew, it was fun exploring the lead up to the movie with you today in our big comic extravaganza. And next week we will uh, be coming back again with an author once again. Yes, we will be. We're going to be having uh, David Goodman on author of uh, Federation first 150 years. Very excited to be talking to him um, to just kind of pick his brain about writing that book, how that came about. Um, You know, what do you choose in the literary universe at all to add to that? Um, what do you just let go um, and how do you find a way from you know first contact all the way to the end of the undiscovered country how do you get to seem like the story is cohesive how, how do you put all that together and I, i've reviewed it for the site it's a great book if you don't have it it's a great thing to pick up for uh, yourself as a fan um, and so I'm very excited to be talking to him. I think that's going to be a great interview. So hope you'll stay around from that. Um, we appreciate you listening for sure. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to him as well. I unfortunately haven't been able to get my hands on that book in Japan yet, but I am planning on it. I've, I've had my eye on it. Unfortunately, shipping costs about as much as the book. So <laughs> I'm going to have to <laughs> wait a little while before I can get my hands on it. But at any rate, um, if you'd like to contact us, if you'd like to share your thoughts on what we talked about today. You know, if you'd like to uh, let us know any particular stories, comics, anything you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, you can go to trek.fm slash contact and you can send us a message through the form on that page. You can go over to facebook.com slash trek.fm where we have an increasingly active community. Our community there is really growing. And you can find us on Twitter anytime talking about Star Trek under username trek.fm. Now, Matthew, what if people want to find you personally? Well, yes, please do. Uh, I am on the Twitter at MattRushing02. Of course, start talking Star Trek comics, uh, talking books, Deep Space Nine. Of course, we're doing the Orb now, so we are talking a lot of Deep Space Nine with fans. Um, And so please follow me there. Give me an at reply. Let me know you're following me. I'll be talking some sports ball as well, so please forgive me. Uh, until my 49ers win the Super Bowl, which then I will talk more sports ball. So uh, just indulge me. It's been 19 years, fans. (laughs) It has been a while. 
All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much anywhere in social media under that same name. And give me a follow, send me an at reply, chat me up. I love to talk about Star Trek, of course. I also talk about sports ball and music and Japan and design and all sorts of things. So uh, give me a shout there. And while you're online, we want to encourage you to go over to trek.fm to the main site. If you go to trek.fm slash pd, that'll take you to our podcast directory page where you can see all the shows we have. We have about 11 shows right now, and we cover every little niche of the Star Trek universe, from dedicated shows to the series to our broad discussion shows with guests like Larry Nemechek on The Ready Room. And uh, we talk about STO, and we even talk about the creative work of, of Star Trek writers and directors and actors outside of Star Trek. So uh, go over and check it all out. And uh, while you're out there, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and help people find the shows and the mysterious inner workings of the iTunes store. We just want to thank all the fans for listening. We thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you. And to the fans, we want to say, live long, read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.